Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. James was born in London, but as an adult, he lived just outside of Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, although it wasn't called that back then. In fact, the whole region was just part of the Virginia colony, the first successful and lasting British foothold in North America. So when you think of him as growing up near the Potomac River, just be sure to imagine him in colonial attire. And the river was a major part of his life, too, although not in the way anyone could have guessed. They might have assumed he would be a fisherman, or maybe run a ferry to the other side for travelers passing through. But James was more mechanically minded than that. It was a family interest, really. Earlier in life, he had lived in Maryland, where he helped a cousin named Benjamin to run a water-powered mill. And while that might seem primitive by the technological standards of our day and age, these were complex machines back then, and they required specific skills to design and build. And James had those skills. In the Virginia colony, he began to acquire a reputation as a builder, even while running an inn for travelers. One of those people who passed through was a man named George, who took a liking to James and contracted him to build a house on some land that he owned in the area. While they were talking, though, James showed George a model of a new kind of boat that he'd dreamed up, one that could navigate the shallow, rocky Potomac with the help of a unique technology, poles. And because of George's unique reputation, James was soon put in a position that would allow him to actually build that boat. Oh, and this George, for those of you keeping track of things, was George Washington. That was 1784. Soon enough, James found himself serving as the superintendent of a brand new endeavor, the Potomac Company, which was charged with improving the navigational qualities of the river. You know, making it easier for boats to travel, which in turn made it easier for goods to be imported and exported. It was good for the whole economy. And James made his mark, too. The company built at least five canals to work around major rough spots in the river. They also worked to remove rocks and silt from other parts, making it much safer for river boats. And in the process, it ended up linking commerce and trade on the East Coast with communities farther west, like Pennsylvania and Ohio. But there was always that boat that he had dreamed of. Now, originally, it had included a large paddle wheel to power it forward, and a pair of enormous poles that could be used to push the ship around as it traveled the trickier spots on the Potomac. And remember, his entire career happened because Washington loved the promise of that model boat. But after initial testing, James realized that the vessel would need a stronger way of propelling itself forward. So he turned to a power source that was known in other fields but untried on ships— Steam. Then after two years of building the body of the ship and also designing and building a small steam engine out of iron coils, James had what he needed. On a cold wintry day in early December of 1787, James and his steamship chugged out into the Potomac near Shepherdstown, just north of Harper's Ferry, and the demonstration was a success. Those who showed up to watch were wowed by the sight of a riverboat being pushed along, not by paddles, but by a forceful jet of hot steam. But alas, in a turn of events that seemed all too common for early inventors, James found himself facing another man, John Finch, 
who had dreamed up a similar mechanism, and for a year the pair of men had a very public war of words over the matter. In the end, it was Finch who won in America, and it was only by moving to England and filing patents there that James was able to get his name on official documents tying him to the creation. The most amazing thing to me about James Rumsey's story just might be the fact that he did all of this in 1787, a mere generation after the American Revolutionary War. Pretty cool, if you ask me. But what I find most intriguing of all is that despite clearly inventing the steamboat first, history has pretty much forgotten him, putting all the praise on Robert Fulton and his 1807 creation of the North River Steamboat. A big accomplishment for sure, but one that stood on the shoulders of James Rumsey and his own design two decades earlier. History can sure be picky, often choosing the wrong hero or inventor or whatever. But above all, it can sure be curious. Of all the questions of the universe, one sits at the forefront of many people's minds. What happens when we die? In some cultures, it's believed that our ancestors are waiting to usher us to the afterlife in peace. In others, we come back as another person or creature in order to relive our lives once more. And of course, there is the persistent concept that our behaviors on Earth influence whether we get to spend eternity in the good place or that other one. But one man believed that there was one final step before humans shuffled off this mortal coil, and he was going to try anything to prove it true. His name was Duncan McDougall, and a doctor and a scientist from Massachusetts. And in 1901, he set out to show that the human body possessed a soul, one with mass that could be measured at the time of death. To prove his claim, he started by selecting six nursing home patients who were close to death. One had been suffering from diabetes, four had been diagnosed with tuberculosis, and one possessed an unknown ailment. He chose them because he knew that when they died, they would be too weak to move. He required absolute stillness in order to measure the soul's weight as it left the body. When a patient's symptoms got worse, their bed, with the patient on top of it, was placed on a giant beam scale, not unlike the kinds found in most school nurses' offices today. It had been calibrated to detect weight within two-tenths of an ounce. McDougall was meticulous in recording his findings. He noted exactly when each patient died, how long they had spent in their beds, and whether their weight had fluctuated at all at the exact time of death. McDougall also took into consideration all the fluids and gases coursing through their bodies. By the time he had completed his calculations, he determined that the human soul weighed no more than 21 grams, less than one ounce. His first patient passed away with a bang. Literally, the scale tipped audibly as the end of the beam knocked against the bottom bar and stayed there. The weight that had been lost was measured at three quarters of an ounce. The same thing happened with the second patient as well, a visible shift as a weight was lifted from the bed. McDougall put his calculations to use, accounting for the setting of fluids like blood and urine and the reduction in gases such as carbon dioxide and nitrogen. Once those numbers were tabulated, he found that the second patient had lost another full ounce of weight. Four more doctors were brought in during each patient's final moments to witness the changes with McDougall and all of them recorded a change. 
The amounts for each patient were different, but nearly everyone did lose something when they died, although one added weight while two others only shed fractions of an ounce. Only four of McDougall's six patients were able to be measured, as there was one instance when a patient had died before the equipment could be set up, and another where the tools malfunctioned. Unfortunately, McDougall still needed to test his hypothesis against a control group. His patient of choice? Dogs. He measured the deaths of 15 canines, none of which exhibited the same changes in weight as the human test subjects. McDougall took that as a sign that dogs didn't have souls a ludicrous notion to any pet owner who knows that it isn't true. After he completed his experiments, McDougall went from measuring the human soul to photographing it. He took numerous pictures of the newly deceased as they crossed over. Many of his photos depicted a light floating around their heads as they drew their final breaths. Sadly, Duncan McDougall was mostly alone in his beliefs about the human soul. Other scientists thought his methods were sloppy and unsound. Some even tried to improve upon them, but to no avail. It's not clear whether the human soul actually has weight, or that it can even be measured. It's one more conundrum to be answered, and unfortunately those who know for sure can't tell us until it's too late. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.